This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Welcome to From the Old Brewery, a postgraduate podcast program at the School of Language, Literature, Music, and Visual Culture. My name is Sukjun Kim, Director of Postgraduate Research at the school, and I'm co-hosting this episode with... Uh, Isabella Ingberg. I'm a PhD student in Comparative Literature. Thank you, Isabella. And today, our guest is Ines Kushner. Ines holds a PDGE in English and History from the University Graz in Austria, as well as an MLit in English Literature Studies from the University of Aberdeen. Before starting her PhD in 2019, she worked as a modern foreign language assistant and teacher in Austria, Spain, and the UK. Ines is a recipient of the School of Language, Literature, Music, and Visual Culture's New King's Studentship. Her PhD project explores nature and wildlife conservation in 21st century fiction. In 2020, she organized an event on storytelling and urban ecology for children and families as part of, of and co-funded by Explorathon and Being Human, the UK's National Festival of the Humanities. She also recently attended COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference, as part of the University of Aberdeen's delegation. Ines, can you tell us a bit more about what your research is about? Thanks, June. So my PhD thesis explores nature and wildlife conservation in 21st century fiction, with a particular focus on multi-species projects of wild making. Um, So in traditional Western human-centered ontologies, nature tends to figure only as a backdrop for human action, as something that humans use, shape, destroy, and preserve. And I've always had an interest in animals and ecology, but I've never really questioned these types of onto stories that I grew up with. But in the first year of my PhD, I came across Donna Haraway's concept of sympoiesis, or making with. And I was just really struck by how it subverts these traditional subject-object positions and by how it redistributes agency across any supposed human-non-human divide. Uh, Now I look at fiction and theoretical approaches that represent conservation as a multi-species project and that also attend to the agencies of non-human actants. Mm So in one of my chapters, for example, I look at representations of rewilding as the experimental work of a more than human collective. But today I'd like to talk about my current research on conference-going polar bears and climate change in Yoko Tawada's novel Memoirs of a Polar Bear. The question I'm interested in for this chapter is, can anthropomorphic fiction help us imagine a more than human politics? So here I focus less on world making and more on the sort of ontological imaginaries that make certain world making projects possible and foreclose on others. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Um, speaking of conferences and climate politics, I hear that uh, you recently attended a COP26 in Glasgow as an observer. So uh, before we talk about your research for this chapter, Maybe uh, could you tell us more about how you became an observer for the University of Aberdeen and what your experience was? Sure. Um, so this was the first time the university sent a delegation to COP. 
And it was really only made possible thanks to Dr. Anna Payu Payu from the School of Biological Sciences. She led the UNIS bid to become an official observer organization. Mm-hmm. So it was last August, I think, they sent out a call for applications to staff and students to apply to attend COP26 as an observer. I initially wasn't going to apply because I thought it was quite unlikely that they'd select a humanities PhD student. But, I mean, I tried anyway, and my application was successful. Uh, I was really very proud that I was selected because they apparently received over 420 applications for the 46 observer passes they had available. Wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. So what was it like? Uh, so what was it like to going to a UN climate change conference as an you know, uh, English literature student? Um, it was very interesting to gain an insight into the UNFCCC process, although a lot of the relevant sessions were close to observers. And if I had to describe the conference itself, the main image that comes to my mind is that of a vast antel. I think that's an apt image since we're talking about ecologizing politics today. Um, and what was it like to attend as a literature student? Well, there's a really lovely scene in Memoirs of a Polar Bear where the first polar bear, who's a circus performer, goes to a conference on the significance of bicycles for the national economy. And sometimes I felt a bit like that bear, like when I was queuing to get into sessions and talking to the other attendants. and noticed myself justifying why I was there a couple of times, as in, I promise my research is relevant. Uh, And I think this may be because climate change and biodiversity loss are usually thought of as the domain of STEM subjects or the more sciencey social sciences. And disciplines that don't adhere to this positivist framework aren't really considered relevant. But I think that the arts and humanities also have a role to play because they can attend to the human dimensions of these intersecting crises. Mm, Absolutely. And did you get anything out of your time at uh, COP for your current research? Did you see any uh, polar bears? (laughs) (laughs) I did, actually. I did see... I saw five polar bears. (laughs) Um, They were were part of a fiberglass sculpture by the artist Vincent Wang in the Tuvalu National Pavilion. So um, just for context, Tuvalu is a small island nation in the Pacific which is facing a lot of precarity due to rising sea levels. So... These five polar bears, they, you know, they stand upright on their hind paws and they are back to back on this tiny ice floe. All of five of them are wearing these fire engine red life jackets. <laughs> They're very clearly anthropomorphized through the posture and their clothing. And obviously I was very pleased to see them um, because I saw some affinities with my current research on conference going polar bears and politics. <laughs> <laughs> But what's interesting is that this was an art installation in a very prominent location in the conference venue. And it was an explicit, deliberate attempt to intervene in the process of political decision making. So Huang's collaboration with the Tuvaluan government goes back to 2010. And he's previously represented the country as a delegate at COP18 and COP19. Oh, he did, right. Mm. Mm. But what really interests me is the way this particular intervention is framed. Uh, Huang said in an interview that these five bears are intended as a metaphor for the people of Tuvalu. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I think this speaks to the iconic nature of polar bears as a sort of global symbol of the impacts of climate change. Uh, 
But on the other hand, the polar bears seem to be just the secondary vehicle for the primary tenor, the people of Tuvalu. And it seems like the main function of the polar bears here is that they allow Huang to draw on the familiar iconography of climate change in order to talk about human precarity. And for me, this just recalls anthropomorphic representational practices where animal bodies are just used as stand-ins for human characteristics or human issues. Mm, right. But, mm. I mean, I'll come back to anthropomorphic bears in relation to yeah. politics in a little bit. And maybe the second thing that really struck me at COP in the context of my current research is just how logocentric politics in its current form is. You know, for example, you, you might remember the controversy around the wording on coal in the cover decision text. Mm. You know, there was a lot of talk about how the language on coal was watered down from calls to phase out coal to phasing it down. Mm. And, you know, this change of only one tiny preposition will, will have such a huge impact uh, in material terms. And, you know, then there was Greta Thunberg's blah, blah, blah framing. It just all seems to revolve around human communication and human modes of embodiment. Mm. So you said uh, you focused on a specific primary text for your current chapter, so Yoko uh, Tawada's Memoirs of a Polar Bear. Uh, that's a great title. Uh, so can you briefly tell us what the novel, novel is about? Sure, it's a fantastic novel. It's a novel about three generations of polar bears. So the first polar bear is a former circus artist in, the so in Soviet Russia who represents the circus at conferences and then starts writing her autobiography. The second bear is her daughter and she's a ballet dancer who then goes on to have a very successful career in a circus in East Berlin. And the third polar bear is her son Knut, who was born and raised in Berlin Zoo and became world famous as a kind of, you know, animal ambassador for the impacts of climate change. Um, but what's interesting to me is that it's a first-person narration from the perspective of these three bears. And Tawada draws a lot on Franz Kafka's animal stories. Right, yeah. Mm, and a major intertext in the novel is his story, A Report to an Academy. So this is the story of an ape called Rotpeter, who is locked in a cage and who learns to behave like a human in order to escape this cage. And Memoirs of a Polar Bear makes a lot of intertextual allusions to this story. So, for example, the first polar bear was stuck in a cage when she was a small cub, and her human keeper put these, you know, these heat-blocking shoes on her back paws and always lit a fire underneath the cage to train her to stand up on her hind legs like a human. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know, very cruel training methods. Oh, but that's how, you know, the first bear becomes anthropomorphized and gains the capacity for human speech. And I think this could also be read as an allusion to human-induced global warming and the forced adaptation polar bears and other species are having to undergo if they are to survive. Wow, that's fascinating. So uh, what you knew about your approach uh, this novel then? Mm. So... None of the critics who have written about this particular novel from an animal studies perspective have really focused on climate politics. I think that's really quite surprising. Um, you know, if you think about that polar bears are the global icon of climate change, and given that there's a lot of engagement in the novel, not just with the politics of animal representation, but also with the role of animals in politics more generally. So... 
this is the gap in the research that I'm hoping to address. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly something that seems very familiar to me. My own researchers on, on Darwin, who also often um, portrayed these anthropomorphized animals and who is obviously the father of evolutionary theory. Um, can you say a bit more about how this is portrayed in, in the novel? Sure. Um, and I think the tripartite structure of the novel is really significant for this. So we move from a bear who becomes this anthropomorphized liminal being capable of human speech uh, by going through a process of human-induced adaptation. And in the second section, we get this polar bear's daughter who is famous for anthropomorphic circus feats. Uh, she can't speak, but she can still make herself understood to humans. And in the third and final section, we get the third generation of polar bears, Knut, who grows up in a zoo and who has a really rich inner life, um, but walks on four legs and can't communicate with humans. Now, if you were to remain within the parameters of a human-centered ontology and read this as a sort of linear progress narrative, you would read this gradual loss of human language and embodiment as a sort of de-evolution. But I actually think the novel discourages this type of reading. You know, at one point, the first polar bear says, for example, I quote, if you asked me, I'd lose no time telling you that I don't consider it progress to walk on two legs, end quote. So I think the novel disentangles three concepts that are often conflated adaptation, evolution and progression. Mm. And there's definitely a multi-generational adaptive response going on here, but it's not tied to a linear narrative of evolutionary progress. Mm. What theory are you using uh, for this chapter then? Mm. The main theory I'm using is Jane Bennett's reworking of Jacques Rancière's theory of democracy as disruption. Mm. So just to give a brief overview of Rancière, Rancière says that what we tend to think of as politics is not actually real politics. You know, things like elections, interest groups and so on, not real politics. These are just what he calls the police order. Um, he focuses on those who are excluded from this social order and who exist within society but who aren't counted or recognized by it because of what he calls the partition of the sensible. Mm -hmm. So this partition of the sensible makes some people visible as political actors and makes others invisible. Um, this really focuses on the aesthetic dimension of politics, on perception. So, you know, when the ed group speaks, the in-group doesn't actually hear argumentative utterances, but just grunts or babble. Right. Mm. And, as, you know, when you think about groups of people who were previously excluded from liberal politics because those in power didn't think they could make sense, like women or slaves, I think that's, you know, where you can see where Rancière gets from. And for Rancière, real politics takes place when those who are excluded by a given partition of the sensible barge in and disrupt it by showing that they're also able to participate in language-based activities. And with this, they stage a wrong, by which he means the injustice of their exclusion. And these staged wrongs are always meant to show what he calls the equality of speaking beings. So here, politics is still something only humans can engage in because it's still tied to human language use. And 
this type of thinking goes back all the way to Aristotle or Hannah Arendt, you know, who said that only humans are political animals because only humans have logos, the mm. capacity for mm. speech. But what's really interesting to me is that Rancière frames this disruption, this political act, as a theatrical act. So he positions it as an intermediary between a kind of knee-jerk, instinctual response, reaction or reflex on the one hand and full-blown human intentionality on the other. Uh, and I'm really putting the human in scare quotes here. <laughs> and Jane Bennett argues that this framing opens the door to non-humans. So what Bennett does is she questions the notion that politics is an exclusively human domain and that it's only humans who can stage such disruptive acts and who can qualify as political actors. She basically asks, what would a theory of democracy look like that also includes non-human, non-humans as political participant actors? Hmm. That sounds very interesting, but uh, maybe also quite theoretical. <laughs> um, can, can you give an example of how you will sort of be applying this in uh, your reading of the novel? Sure. Um, why don't I read out the passage from the novel and then I could do a little close reading of it. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> so this is from the first section of the novel where the first polar bear attends a conference and she says... To make your opinion known, you have to first be seen by the session leader. This doesn't happen unless you raise your hand quickly, more quickly than all the others. Almost no one can get his hand up in the air at a conference faster than me. You seem fond of sharing your opinions. I was once treated to this ironic bit of commentary. I parried with a simple response. That's how democracy works, isn't it? But... That day, I discovered it wasn't free will thrusting my poor hand into the air like that. It was a sort of reflex. I felt this realization like a stab in the chest. I tried to put aside the pain and get back into my groove, a four-part rhythm. The first beat was the session leader's restrained, go ahead. The second was the word, I, which I slammed down on the table in front of me. On the third beat, all the listeners swallowed, and on the fourth I took a daring step, clearly enunciating the word think. To give it some swing, I naturally stressed the second and fourth beats. I had no intention of dancing, but my hips began waggling back and forth on the chair. The chair immediately chimed in, contributing cheerful creaks. <laughs> Each stressed syllable was like a tambourine underscoring the rhythms of my speech. <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> oh, she's lovely. She's a great stylist. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's actually funny because I had to think a lot about this passage a lot at COP. Um, <laughs> because the UN had a microphone system on all the tables. And when a delegate wanted to say something or make an intervention, as they called it, they had to press a button. And this just reminded me of, you know, the Pavlovian dog hitting the button to get food. <laughs> you know, Pavlov's, Pavlov's experiments on classical conditioning. Mm. And here in this passage, we also get this juxtaposition of free will and reflex. Mm, yeah. So I think the way I read it is we can track how the representation of embodiment changes across this passage by looking at this hand she raises to participate in public life. And... I think hand functions as a metonym for human agency here. So we go from the word hand in relation to a generic you 
to the compound word poor hand when she remembers her human-induced adaptation. Mm. I mean, in this passage and beyond, it's as if she's oscillating between those two poles, human and animal, and this has a very disorientating effect on the reader so that we kind of lose sight of the difference between the two, which I think puts them on a continuum instead of on a binary. And going back to Rancière, there's also a theatrical staging of this disruptive event. You know, there's a rhythm and dancing, and this again foregrounds its performative aspect. And even more interestingly, this is a distinctly linguistic and even a literary performance. Mm. You know, the four-part rhythm of human-bear, human-bear interaction is set to an iambic meter, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. And it also subverts the traditional human-animal subject and object positions. The humans here are portrayed as passive. You know, on the first beat, the session leaders restrained go ahead. And on the third beat, the human audience takes a sort of collective gulp, this involuntary nervous reaction to a speaking bear. And the polar bear's actions, on the other hand, are really confident and more or less deliberate. I mean, they're not entirely intentional because she unintentionally starts to dance as she speaks. So the terms in which this is framed is really strikingly similar to the way Rancière describes the political act as a staged event that's in between reflex and free, free will. Mm. But I mean, there's even more, right? <laughs> the critic Eva Hoffmann makes a very convincing argument that this I think should be read as an intertextual allusion to Kant's I think therefore I am, which is perhaps the most paradigmatic statement in Western philosophy on the human capacity for reflexivity and rational thought. So, you know, the polar bear appropriates these words which are meant to exclude her and other non-human animals. She appropriates them for herself and she plays with them as if to say, you humans think polar bears can't think, speak and participate in public life? Well, you're wrong. And I think such a language game definitely redraws the partition of the sensible that Rancière talks about in relation to humans. Um, do you think anthropomorphic fiction can be a, a valuable tool in, in helping us imagine this, this sort of more-than-human politics? Yes, I think it can have potential value here. I think the value of fiction and eco-criticism more generally is that they can offer more playful space for engaging with these issues than, say, a political theory essay. And Tawada is a really good example for this, I think, um, because of her surrealist aesthetics and her distinctly playful style. Um, and Bennett herself says that, I quote, a careful course of anthropomorphization end quote, can help us to become attuned to non-human agency, even though it resists complete translation. So basically she says that we can use anthropomorphism as a kind of conceptual crutch to unlearn human exceptionalism and human-centered ontologies. But she's talking about this mainly in the context of what verbs do we use to talk about non-human activities, as in you know, we need to rewrite the grammar of agency so that it's not just humans who can act upon an inert world. Mm. Yeah. And what anthropomorphic fiction like Memoirs of a Polar Bear does is it arguably, arguably goes much further than that. It's not just a realist novel. It's not a realist novel and it pushes anthropomorphism to an extreme, um, maybe as far as it can go, really. But 
What Tawada does really well is to address this gap in translation Bennett refers to, this gap between real non-human beings and our anthropomorphic translations of them. And she critically reflects on this gap. So for her, I think it's not a naive or weak anthropomorphism in John Simon's or Greg Garrett's terms, but a strong or critical one that questions the terms of its own representational practices. Um, you know, for example, the first installment of the Bear's Memoirs is published under the title Thundering Applause for My Tears. Um, and this was added, this was not added by the Bear, this was added by the publishers without consulting her. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> Lovely, right? Mm. And when the Bear finds out, she goes to her publisher and complains. Why did you give it that title when you know my species aren't actually able to shed tears? Why would you squeeze me into these tropes of human sentimentality? So, you know, the novel doesn't just show us the many ways in which animals are already entangled in human politics, but it also scrutinizes the way we represent animals' participation in public life. Mm. And do you think there are any sort of limitations for, for such an approach as well? Um, yeah, I can think of two. Um, so the first is that if we're looking to imagine a new form of democracy or politics that isn't based on human modes of embodiment like speech or gesture or self-presentation, um, you know, then a novel with a walking, talking, anthropomorphized bear isn't really doing much to help us visualize this. And that, I think, is where the middle section of the novel gets really interesting because Here we see an attempt to imagine how interspecies communication might happen if one of the partners can't speak, if one of the partners is non-linguistic. Mm. But my second concern is about what kinds of mechanisms or institutions of democracy we might use to listen to non-humans. So, for example, at one point Bennett writes, I quote, Surely the scope of democratization can be broadened to acknowledge more non-humans in more ways, in something like the ways in which we have come to hear the political voices of other humans formerly on the outs, end quote. She also likens this exclusion to the founding fathers denying slaves and women the vote. Now, I'm not sure if this is Bennett's intention, because I don't think she intends to remain within the current framework of liberal democracy. But... To me, it kind of sounds as, as if this pushes the discussion into the direction of rights, you know, the right to vote and so on. And in the context of anthropomorphism and the politics of animal representation, this brings us to the idea of moral extensionism, where you, you basically just extend rights and moral status to some animals. But extending the franchise in this way could be problematic because it only resituates some non-humans on the rights-holding side of the debate and it leaves the underlying division of human-non-human intact. Mm. Right. It's also problematic because what are the selection criteria? You know, I could imagine that it would be animals that are most like us or in some way charismatic, like polar bears. And because we're talking about world-making projects, what kind of world does this then shape? Um, you know, probably one in our image that just mirrors our tastes and values back to us. I think the novel is actually quite critical of this type of liberal discourse about social exclusion and, you know, these notions of rights and infringed rights. 
For example, the first polar bear keeps getting chased by human rights activists who want to give her rights. And <laughs> she's very confused by this because she says she's not even human. <laughs> you know, it sounds like uh, this will be a very interesting chapter. Um, representation of polar bears in popular discourse uh, are often quite sad, as you know, uh, because as they, they tend to focus on precarity in the face of climate change and the species potential extinction. So I was wondering, um, are you optimistic about the future having all you know, uh, 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 said and done? Do you, uh, for example, think COP26 was a success? Oh, that's a very tricky question. <laughs> um, I'd say it depends. You know, do I think we're acting quickly enough and with the urgency the situation calls for? No, absolutely not. Mm. But I also think that it's important to be realistic about what this process can deliver. You know, it's a multilateral negotiation with over 200 countries. Um, one of the central metaphors in my field is entanglement. And I think we've been so closely entangled with fossil fuels for centuries, in the global north at least. Uh, our whole way of life is built on them. And I think it's not that easy to disentangle ourselves. But in terms of international equity and solidarity, and I mean the discussions around loss and damage, this COP was very disappointing. And I'm optimistic in general. I think I'm neither pessimistic nor optimistic, but hopeful. A year or so ago, I read an article on hope in the Anthropocene by David Chandler, which has really stayed with me. Chandler says that hope is not optimism. You know, it's not hoping for the best, it'll all be fine. He says that hope is an effective desire for alternative possible outcomes. And I think if we can, it's really important to cultivate a hopeful attitude because hope is also a prerequisite for action. Like if you've lost hope, there's no point in acting, right? Yeah, we got to have a hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, what's next in store for you? Uh, what are your plans uh, for the near future? So... The COP delegation met up last week to talk about maybe setting up a climate assembly at the university. And so cool. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and in our post-COP meetings, it kind of became apparent that there's a huge appetite for more interdisciplinary collaboration. Uh, and senior management has also said that there are plans to better link up the uni both horizontally and vertically. So, for example, there are the five new interdisciplinary challenge areas as part of Aberdeen 2040, and one of them is the Center for Environment and Biodiversity. And I'd really love to somehow get involved in this. Um, you know, it would be really amazing to see what meaningful transdisciplinary research could look like and how it could be done. And now that I've attended COP26, I'm also looking forward to following COP15, um, on, you know, the UN Biodiversity Conference, which is coming up in April. Uh, it'll take place in China, which is quite far away, obviously, um, but there'll be live streams of all the negotiations. And I'm also hoping that I can make really good progress with my writing this semester because there's a new course on literature and sustainability coming up in the autumn that, really? yeah. yeah, and I'd love to, you know, hopefully be allowed to tutor <laughs> yeah. on it. Um, and I'm also looking forward to February 27th, which is International Polar Bear Day. So soon. <laughs> <laughs> Great. On that note, uh, thanks, uh, Ines, and thanks, Isabella, for this uh, wonderful uh, discussion for this episode. Uh, thanks, everyone.
Bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.